274 Breaking Cafe with Valdron and Barry. Well, I will remind all of you that Wednesday, though not the day this show will come out, Wednesday, Barry, is always hump day. <laughs> see what you did there. I see what you did. Yeah, okay. So on this particular episode, we are going to go to the College of Wrestling Knowledge, folks, uh, as we are joined by AWA historian. Barry has deemed him not just an archivist, but in fact, an historian. We are going to July 7th, 1977, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, as the High Flyers, Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel, take on Black Jack Lanza and Bobby Duncan. George going to come on, talk about the match a little bit. And, you know, George, I don't know if you know this, Barry, he occasionally likes to spin a yarn uh, around the uh, the AWA and its history, and it's always great stuff, Bear. This is the kind of interview, too. It's not even an interview. It's more of a chat amongst uh, friends with some wrestling history knowledge. But this is the kind of conversation you get around a campfire. You got some s'mores going. You're just sitting there, and you got George just telling wrestling stories for the next few hours. That, to me, Jeff, very different what I would have said 20 years ago, 30 years ago. That, to me, sounds like a good time, though. Well, I'll tell you, and that uh, great segue point there, Barry, about what wasn't a good time during our recent Christmas season. Oh, it's good, fun times freezing our asses off here in North Georgia for the Boundrins. Barry, as I told you off the air before we started recording, we had a little problem here. You know, the the big uh, uh, cold front that came down through the middle of the country and pretty much impacted uh, I think maybe Hawaii was the only state not uh, impacted by the damn cold front, but it got pretty freaking cold here in North Georgia. I don't mean just cold, like let's put on a light sweater. I mean like, holy shit, the wife is telling me with the wind chill factor, it's like minus 10. And, you know, we're in the new home and I'm sitting here. I want to say it's like the 23rd and all of a sudden I'm kind of going, Hey, that's a, a little chilly here, and the wife is due home in about an hour, and I look at the thermostat, which is set at 67, and it's 62, which is not supposed to be happening when you have the heat on, Mr. Rose. So I uh, give the wife a call. Hey, yeah, there's something going on here, uh, because the wife has told us that we, you know, as part of the uh, the new purchase to home is we've got the contract where uh, the, uh, the guy that sold us the house said, oh, yeah, we'll hook you up if there's any kind of problems for the first year. You guys are covered. Okay, great. So uh, the wife comes home. Yeah, we're looking. Yeah, there's definitely something wrong. Uh, and so what we uh, decide we're going to have to do, by the way, we found out that contract is just to have someone come out and check the problem for a hundred dollars. <laughs> well, buyer beware, right, Bear? Uh, yeah. So anyway, so we make the run up to Home Depot to f- try to find some space heaters. Okay. And we go up there and the guy said, well, you know, it's funny. You're looking for space heaters earlier this morning. Uh, somebody asked me for a space heater. I said, oh yeah, it's right over there on that uh, shelving unit there, the entire shelving unit, which was filled with space heaters. Uh, and he says, now uh, about, uh, 30 minutes ago, somebody said, oh, you got any space heaters? And I turned, I said, yeah, it's right there. And it's an empty shelf. And apparently every yeah, heating unit had been sold that had been on the shelf. We were lucky to find a few. Uh, and so we said, okay, we're going to grab these. And so we're dropping like 
I don't know, like 150 bucks for a space heater. And we bought like two or three. And of course, at Christmas time, always a good time to run up yet more credit uh, card problems. And so we're doing that. We bring back the space heaters and, uh, you know, in the bedroom, it was, uh, it was okay. Out in the living room, it was okay. So because we felt the heating, uh, unit was not working, we had turned off the heat. The next morning we woke up, walked out to the living room. 55 degrees in our living room bear. Oh, so we were like, well, we, we got to do something about this. So one of the heating units we had bought was, uh, you know, there were two that were up on a, uh, the tripod, which were working fine. The other one we had put inside our fireplace. Uh, and it wasn't really doing that well. It was, it was one that was supposed to be mounted on a wall. Uh, so we're like, well, this one, and that was the one that cost the less, of course. So Kim's like, well, we, we got to do something. We got to run to the store and uh, get us some firewood or something like that. So we, uh, we go up to the old, uh, Kroger there, uh, locally. And, uh, so we go to buy some firewood. And, uh, so we get uh, a couple of, <clears throat> get a load of this very couple cords of wood. That's my, uh, ah. that's my new fireplace talk. Cords of wood. And, uh, the Dura, Barry, have you ever used the Duraflame logs? I have used it. Dur- you know, I've used it to start. So before I moved, I look, first off, fucking love a fireplace. One of my favorite things. Sadly, when I moved out of my house, uh, which would be almost two years, I have not had it, but I would, uh, I would use the Duraflame to start and then I would just keep piling wood. But those, exactly. I like yeah. those Duraflame. Yeah. Very easy. You literally just kind of yeah. stretch the bag out, set it on fire and, and then you're, you're good to go for a couple hours. And then you start adding, uh, you know, your, uh, your logs and your other firewood, uh, to the, to the fire and it stays lit. And it was very nice. And once we did that, uh, it was really nice and we were and my wife was like, well, why, why haven't we done this uh, before? We've been in the house. Oh, we haven't needed to uh, before this biblical cold front that came through. And uh, Barry, uh, just curious, how did you guys uh, get uh, as far as the cold front? Uh, I, were you like Buffalo where people were snowed in or how bad was your area impact? No, so we weren't snowed in. We had very little snow. We had a lot of rain at one point. Temperatures did drop. I think the big issue that we faced, and I believe this was – Five days from this recording, there was a lot of rain, and it was probably in the low 50s, maybe high 40s, and then within two to three hours, the temperature dropped over 30 degrees, meaning all that water was now frozen, making the roads really dangerous. Saturday was the worst. I believe if I woke up to walk Ozzy, it was two degrees out with a wind chill, I believe, minus 10, minus 11 and uh we were going down to Philly to watch the Eagles play that day at Xfinity Live, which is this huge entertainment complex. Other than cold as shit, like painful, I'm going to die type of cold, we didn't really get much else. So more painful for you that day, the cold weather and the effects it has on you, or the Eagles losing to the Cowboys? Oh, sorry, I had yeah. to mention that. Probably Eagles losing to Cowboys. Again, I'm a first-year Eagles fan. I have uh, watched every game. I've been watching every – you know, I was watching the the Vikings game that same day, Jeff. So I had to tell you, I've really immersed myself into football this year. And uh, you're, you're a bit of a fanboy now. I have become a fanboy, which is a very accurate way to describe me at this moment. I, all I'll say is, had that been, and it wasn't, so maybe it doesn't matter, I, I feel confident in saying that had that been our starting QB, I don't believe we would have lost the game. There was a lot of issues. Uh, and Minshew, who really hadn't played this year, 
who did decent last year. There was that conversation. Who's going to be the starter? Will it be Minshew or Hertz? Uh, Sirianni went with Hertz. Obviously it's, that's turned out to be a great decision, but Minshew had, uh, he made a few mistakes. There were a couple of really horrible plays, horrible throws. I believe it cost us the game. I don't know. I, uh, it was cold. We lost. I will say though, the food at Xfinity Live, really good. And that always makes me happy, Jeff. All right. Just to finish up this, uh, segment. So, uh, about a day later, it starts warming up a little bit, okay? And when I say a little bit, it goes from like uh, 5 to like maybe 15 or 20. And all of a sudden, we start noticing uh, on our uh, our thermostat that it's starting to get a little bit warmer in the house. And we're thinking, oh, it's the fireplace, it's the space heaters. And then all of a sudden, uh, the next day, we're like, oh, it's back up to 67. So what we believe, uh, we're actually having a service team come out on Monday but we believe that our uh, air conditioning and heating unit, which is over 20 years old, but I mean, our house isn't huge. I think it just got overwhelmed, uh, which completely not surprising at all. Like, you know, you're used to dealing with a certain temperature and then it falls 30 degrees cold. And they said this is like the coldest has been in this area in like 25 years. This is not an every year, uh, you know, you should be used to this. You, you know, you live in Buffalo. You're supposed to be used to this shit. Uh, but, uh, you know, you live in North Georgia. You're not used to having minus 10 with the wind chill, Barry. So anyway, speaking of uh, you were talking about your Eagles, Barry, are you ready for a little rapid fire? Let's do it. Rapid fire, Barry. Let's start off. Oh, good friggin' Lord, Barry. Let's talk about your New York Knicks. Barry <laughs> Rose, I saw this at the time of recording this. It is the yes, night sir. after they lost to the yep. Dallas Mavericks and yep. Luka Doncic, who, who basically yep. he's a great fucking player, but he's 60. What was it? 60 points. Yeah. Yeah. I will yeah. Sh- tell you this stat that I saw about last night's Mavericks Knicks game. The Knicks were ahead by nine with literally 23 seconds left, something like that. So according to this stat, NBA teams were, oh, and 13,884 in the last 20 seasons when trailing by at least nine with 35 or fewer seconds left. Luca and the Mavericks pulled off the miracle. Barry Rose, is it time for this dumpster fire of a day? They have eight fucking wins in a row and then they lose three in the most excruciating like ways. Is it time for the Tom Thibodeau era to be done? Not necessarily, and I think he's going to make it through the rest of the year. I think long-term, yeah, it's time. With the loss to Dallas, as you said, uh, Luca was in the zone. That when you're scoring 60 points, first off, uh, anybody playing defense on New York should be, uh, put on waivers today. Uh, because if you let a guy score 60 points, that's, you've got an issue right there. Especially a guy that's, it's not Kobe. And he, I get it that he's a good player. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, 60 points? Come on. This guy was out of, was just out of control and we did nothing to stop it. The game, and I believe it was Christmas Day, uh, featured uh it was against philly uh, the sixers featured what has typically been the knicks this year and and the key with that as you said eight in a row right like that's that's a big fucking deal in a lot of ways because the knicks whether i love them or hate them they're they're just uh, in my opinion a step above a mediocre team right they're they're not a very good team they're not mediocre they're they're maybe good i don't know i wouldn't even say they're even good but eight wins in a row. But what happened against Philly 
And, uh, and there was one positive, which I'll talk about in a second that came out of that was the fourth quarter collapse. And that has been the Knicks really the last few years, especially this year. There's a fourth quarter collapse where they forget where they are. They don't know how to play. The only positive out of that game was New York thrives on a villain, Reggie Miller. I mean, arguably the greatest villain in Knicks history, or at least the last 30 years. Trey Young with Atlanta, soon may not be with Atlanta because he's really disgruntled. Uh, last year with, you know, his taunting of the crowd and all that became public enemy number one. Watching Joel Embiid the other night as the boos are raining and he's gesturing to the crowd, bring it on because I love it with the biggest smile on his face. That's the kind of shit I love. I love great rivalries when it comes to New York. However, the team, eh, less than, less than good, better than mediocre. Tell me if you uh, agree or disagree. There was a lot of talk in the offseason about whether the Knicks were going to kind of go all in on the Donovan Mitchell trade. They chose yeah. not to. A lot of people push back on that because, you know, they oh, we don't want to give up R.J. Barrett. We don't want to give up this guy, uh, Emmanuel, quickly. So. Is the problem or part of, let's not say the entire problem, is part of the problem with the Knicks? So you got your Julius Randle, your RJ Barrett, your Jalen Brunsons. Is it the fact that they've got a lot of guys who on a great team would be sort of the second best player and they don't truly have a guy that is that number one go-to stud of a player? They don't. I mean, who are you going to, who's your, you know, if Barrett. Well, but right? do, you, do you agree with the concept that there are a, a few number two guys like RJ Barrett, I think could be a solid number two in the right situation. Exactly. Uh, on a yeah. team that had a star. Correct. I don't know, Correct. I, I don't know if he's the guy that's going to be there. Like he had a game the other a week or so ago where he scored 49 fucking points. They lost, yeah. of course, but I don't think Julius Randle is that guy. I think Jalen Brunson. Could be a nice co-number two with R.J. Barrett if they had a star. So did they fuck up by not getting Donovan Mitchell? I don't think so. I, I it, again, I think that uh, I think you'd have to even do better than Donovan Mitchell. Which you know what I mean? I I think this is this is a team, as you said, it's a it's a quite a few number twos. I would say there's quite a few number threes or fours as well. It's a it's a great bench for sure, <laughs> which really sounds like I'm taking shots. It's a great bench, but at the same time, the starting five is what the starting five is. There's the, it, it appears to me, and I don't, you know, what do I know, right? Lack of leadership and where I think a really good veteran and a stud, a stud of a player, which you said, those two things I think could make a difference. All right. Second rapid fire question. Saw this posted within the group. Uh, I think it was uh, Adam Dumau posted this uh, about the recent Ric Flair documentary that is on Peacock, Barry Rose. Will you be watching the Ric Flair documentary? If you tell me, and I, here's the funny thing, I'm going to go off of, this is on your shoulders right now, Jeff. What? You, <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. I have read 85 million reviews on this thing over the last two days from people in the business to fans. Everybody's got it. Apparently his ex-wife jumping into, uh, on, I don't know if you saw that on Twitter. She's apparently got a lot of issues with what was presented. This would be Beth. And uh she's calling a lot of it lies, et cetera. And I forget her wording. If you tell me that I have to see this, this is a much a must watch. I will. Uh, and then we can obviously talk about it on the show. But if you say 
this is a rehash for the most part. There's nothing new here. I, pro- I Right now, I could care less if I ever see it. On that note, did you ever see the Teddy Hart documentary on Peacock? I did not. I would fucking drop whatever you're doing right now, including this recording, and go watch that. It is mind-boggling. That I found interesting. Well, getting back to the Ric Flair documentary, I can only say, and, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with Adam uh, posting in the group and saying what did everybody think about it. That's so I, I don't want this to be perceived as me taking a shot at Adam no, or anybody no. else who watched it. I have literally zero, right. zero, 0.0 Mr. Blutarski interest in watching Ric Flair try to glom more fucking money and more fucking clicks or likes or whatever. I'm sorry. Just like everybody else that listens to this show, I loved Ric Flair in the 80s and in the 70s when he was the greatest wrestler in the world uh, to a lot of people and had great matches night after fucking night and did probably what nobody else at that time could do. He's a fucking clown now. And, you know, I, I don't wish him ill, you know, like, uh, you know, bad things on him. I, I just want him to fucking go away. And he can't <laughs> yeah. because he's addicted to the fucking spotlight. He's got this podcast that I couldn't give two fucking shits about. I know his son-in-law has got a lot of stroke in the podcasting world. Good oh, really? for him. Who cares? But Rick. Go the fuck away and leave us alone because you at this point in your life are a fucking clown and you're a disgrace to what our memory of Ric Flair in the 1980s uh, when you were the limousine riding, jet flying, kiss stealing, wheeling dealing, son of a gun. Woo! That guy is gone. I don't know if he died on the table when you were sick or what, but the Ric Flair that's out there now that's got the fucking thinning hair and the fucking bad teeth, I'm sorry. I got no interest in seeing that guy next. Anyway, Barry, now we're going to try a new segment. I'm going to get some fucking heat for that. What do you think? Uh, Barry Rose, so Christmas time, Mrs. Baudrin got me. Got me a desk calendar. And when I first opened it, I go, what the fuck did you give me a desk calendar? I, I don't fucking work at the courthouse anymore. The desk calendar she got me, Barry Rose. Uh-uh. Are you ready for our newest segment on Breaking Kayfabe with Valdron and Barry? Let's, uh, sure. It's called Bullshit or Not. Love it. Okay, so I'm going to give you two different stories you have to tell me one of them is absolutely true. The other one is complete bullshit. Okay. So the first one is about interns, Barry. The first story says, uh, it's titled intern discovers new planet. Who says interns are useless? A 17 year old NASA intern noticed a dark object 1300 light years away and received credit for discovering a planet. Story number two. Intern promoted to vice president in one day. A particularly smart intern, Tammy Lynch of Fredonia, New York, went from intern to vice president of marketing in one day. Thanks to her keen insights about demographics. Well, that and the fact that everyone else in the department had quit in mass or mass, whichever you prefer. So of those two stories, Barry, tell me which one is true and which one's bullshit. I'm going to say the second story about the intern being promoted to VP in one day was true, and the story with NASA was bullshit. But th- you could easily flip this around, but that's just that's my early guess. 
You were wrong. Don't. First attempt, Barry. The guy wow. discovering the planet was absolutely true. Next story, Barry. We'll do Damn two it. just to just to get them started here, Barry. All right. Uh, since we're not doing a Florida man story, Snap presenting me with his uh, his bone. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. Aww. Next story, Barry Rose. Uh, first story. Jeff, how long have you had? How long you had Snap now? Uh, it's been about a little over two months now since we've two had two months. This. And he's a he's an adult dog. He's adult. two now. Yes, celebrated his birthday. Male dog. So symbolically, him bringing the bone to you is a gigantic gesture of trust and love. And I well, got to tell you, I'm I'm getting a little weepy because every episode we have to have at least one weepy Barry Rose segment. <laughs> and Jeff, my kids and my daughter in college, weepy dad. Let's talk more about the show Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, I'll be single again if you do that. So. Uh, Jen Ortega, she's 20 years old, by God. Yes, but, uh, so but with that, that really says a lot, Jeff, that uh, <laughs> snap. I'm getting right back to the dog story. Okay. So I, it really does say a lot, and uh, that is, that's a very special thing. A lot of dogs, you know, it, every dog can be different, but when a dog brings a toy over to you, that is the symbol of of what that what the dog thinks about you. That's well, you know, th- there's that, and you know, because Snap was uh, he was adopted and then returned. Don't ever fucking do that if you're in our group and tell me about it because your ass will be gone from the fucking group if I hear you did that. You cannot like dogs. That's your that's your you know you're right. But if you fucking adopt an animal and you give them up because you're fucking moving, it, I don't want to fucking hear that story. I'm and sorry, you, you you have to like dogs too, Jeff. I got yeah. That, I think that's that a requirement. Yeah. We have a few, <laughs> we have a few cat people in the group and eh, we sort All of right. let them in, uh, but yeah. it's not something we're in favor of. Second ultimate bullshit question, Barry. Rose. All right. The first story, exterminator rescues roaches before fumigating. An eccentric exterminator from Brooklyn tries to save as many roaches as possible before doing his job saying, quote, even tiny lives count. Second story, a breeder got rid of this husky because of her weird eyes, but now the Internet loves her. A four-year-old Siberian husky with an eye condition was sent to a shelter by her. Oh, we're just talking about fucking snap. We hear this right. story. Was sent to a shelter by her awful breeders, but thanks to a New Jersey rescue, she's an Internet hit. Barry Rose, which story is bullshit? Which story is true? So last time I said the First story was bullshit, and the second story was true. I'm going to flip that and say the first story is true, and the second one's bullshit. Eh, over <laughs> two rows. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> oh, the breeder uh, with the weird-eyed husky is the true story. Uh, Barry Rose, we're starting a new segment, and you're over two. What's going to happen in the future? I don't know, but right now, I do know that it's time to go to our match of the week. Barry, it's been a hot minute since we talked a little old school AWA. And, uh, we are going back to July 7th, 1977, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Maybe, maybe Chris Jericho was at this match as a wee bit of a lad as we have the high flyers, Greg Ganya and Jim Brunzel taking on Blackjack Lanza and bad boy Bobby Duncan. And we're joined by George Shire, friend of the show, George Bristol. How you doing, my man? I am doing great, guys. Hope you are as well. Absolutely. So, Barry, always a good time to have George uh, on with us to talk a little AWA history. 
It is, too. You know, and I loved it. George is the kind of guy. George is passionate, Jeff, you know, and we've all – I know I have passions, which I can't discuss legally on the air currently. That's true. There's been a restraining order filed. There has. There has. But with that, George's passion is not just really professional wrestling, which it is, but his – he really, you know, delves deep into the AWA. And I, I see George in, in, on his Facebook group answering questions literally from, like, the early 60s with the most minute detail – this guy, I don't think I am. This guy, he's a wrestling historian. There you go. You're you're merely a wrestling archivist, Barry. Correct. Let's, let's put yes. that into context. So, uh, George, let's get a little background on the AWA in July of 1977. So Lonza and uh, Duncan come in as the tag champs. Uh, was Winnipeg a city that they did title changes in uh, very often? Uh, they did a few of them over the years. It was uh, a lot of times it was to help bolster a territory or a town. So if they did do that, that would be one of the reasons that they wanted to kind of pick it up. Winnipeg wasn't always in the AWA loop in the early, uh, well, in the 60s. It wasn't really till the early 70s when they started coming around and uh, Vern had picked up Winnipeg and was working with uh, Al Tomko, who was... Uh, wrestled as Leroy Crazy Legs Leroy Hirsch but uh, Al Tomko was the was the promoter do you ever do you ever happen to see a card? And that that's a thing for me too. Like when I think of the state of Florida, I think of not the cities I went to, but the cities I didn't get to and I'm pissed I can never change that. Did you ever make the AWA loop? I did, but not well, you, you would a little bit after the AWA was done too, but yes, I did. I saw cards in Milwaukee and uh, Chicago and Denver and uh, Green Bay, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, of course, um, into Omaha, Nebraska. So yeah, pretty much so. Uh, some small cards in Iowa, and uh, you know that was pretty much the the loop back in the day, as you call it, the loop. So Green Bay was uh the was it the Brown County Arena or uh, something like? Yes, yes. Okay, and which uh, was Brown the what, what what was the arena in Chicago that you uh you visited? Uh, that was our old famous amphitheater. Oh my okay, God. and th- that's where they had the all the cards with the Bruiser and Heenan and Von yep. Raschke and all those guys. Okay, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So uh, the amphitheater is one of those places that when you went there, you wanted to make sure you had your life insurance paid up and you probably said <laughs> goodbye, to your, goodbye to your loved ones before you left because uh, a little the bullets alcohol might have been flying. Yeah, a little alcohol and wrestling fans in Chicago, for some reason, uh, they yelled blood for every card. It was crazy. And uh, the bruiser was huge there. So was the crusher as draws. And then, you know, they had battles against the Blackjacks, Lanza and Mulligan, and that was huge stuff there. So, yeah. Barry, Barry, I don't, Barry, I don't know if you know this, but uh, fans in Chicago are known for drinking beer. Did you know what? that? <laughs> no, it's a huge stunner. Really? So, anyway, uh, George, getting back to the uh, historical context uh, of this, first of all, uh, how long had uh, Lanza and Duncan held the tag titles at this point? Lanza and Duncan first won the title from uh, Crusher and Bruiser in Chicago, ironically. And they did that back on uh, July of 76. And so they had held it for 
well, a full year short of a week or so when they lost it to uh, the High Flyers in Winnipeg in July of 77. So, George, let me ask you, too. Bobby Duncan is one of those guys that when I saw Bobby, and I probably saw Bobby wrestle 100, 200 times down in the state of Florida, he was a guy that, for whatever reason, I never got truly behind, a guy that, when I was watching him, I wasn't convinced he was uh, the greatest wrestler. You know, I just, for whatever reason, I, he never connected with me. And then in later years, I started watching him on videotape and I saw just how wrong I was. What, what, do, you, what do you think is Duncombe's legacy in pro wrestling? Well, I think what you have to look at with Bobby Duncombe is he was one of those guys that had a solid background when he came into the business because he'd come out of uh, – training with the funks down in in uh, Amarillo you know along with guys like Rhodes and Stan Hansen and uh you know the whole bunch of guys at Brody all those guys that were down there you know when I when I saw him first come to the AWA I had heard about him seen him in programs and I thought well you know this guy I guess they're building him is pretty good I wasn't impressed with his particular style because he was, for lack of a better word, he was slower in the ring and sort of a methodical type wrestler. I mean, it seemed like he just, he did things, but I don't know if he ever had a purpose in mind. They just, he just did them. And when they teamed him with Lanza, uh, I was very disappointed uh, with Lanza, who of course was with Bobby Heenan and, the Bobby Heenan family at the time was Nick Bockwinkle, uh, Ray Stevens originally with them, and then Lanza. So when he first hooked up with Lanza, I wasn't impressed with him. But I, I tell you a guy that was, and this really speaks volumes. Vern Gagne was really in to Bobby Duncombe. I don't know why, but he liked his, he liked his uh, style. And if you look at the record books, which I like to do, you know, results records, Bobby Duncombe is the only guy that Vern ever allowed to beat him clean in a match. Wow. And I mean, to me, that says a lot because Vern did not do that. This was when Vern wasn't champ at the time, but Bobby got a, got a win over Vern and it kind of went around the circuit. Um, for Vern to do that, that tells me that Bobby was on his list as, as somebody he liked. So do you think this was a case of, you, you know, there were uh, promoters that uh, there's no question when they were bringing in somebody new, they had a particular type that they wanted, you know, like uh, some guys wanted uh, people that were amateur uh, wrestlers. Uh, some guys wanted the football players. Was Bobby Duncan maybe, uh, did he fit into that type? of uh, background that Vern was really a, a fan of? Well, Vern, of course, you got to remember, was always, first and foremost, he wanted guys that had a fundamental background, a training, you know, where they, they knew how to wrestle, so to speak, and then, you know, add in all the shenanigans and the character and the charisma or character, whatever, in, you know, along the way. But with Bobby Duncombe, um, obviously with Lanza, they wanted to bring in a cowboy partner. You know, Black Jack Lanza was originally Cowboy Jack when he was a babyface, and he had went through the transformation. So they, they he wanted to do a cowboy wrestler. 
I think Duncan fit the bill for that. And then when you add in Bobby Heenan, you know, there, there becomes the secret ingredient into the food right there. Uh, put Heenan with Lanza and Duncan and whatever shortcomings Duncan had or, or could be perceived to have had, it was all gone with Bobby Heenan in the mix and Lanza, you know, obviously doing what he was doing best. Uh, the Blackjacks, Lanza and Mulligan would have been my preference to come in, but they had already broken up by that time. And, you know, Jack, or Mulligan was going his own route down in the South and, and building his own reputation after he and Jack had been together off and on for about five years in the WWF at the time, because they held the title there. And then they were in uh, Bruiser and Snyder's WWA group where they were the tag team champions. And then they worked, of course, for Chicago when uh, Vern and Bruiser promoted Chicago together, which was a unique thing because Chicago was the only city in the AWA that got regular inflection of wrestlers from the WWA as well. So the cards were always really unique in Chicago, where regular AWA fans didn't always get the same talent. So, George, let, let's address something that is constantly out there on the Internet, in newsletters, and probably has been for some 40 to 50 years at this point. Greg Gagne, and, and this is not me, I should say, uh, Greg Gagne would have never made it in the business if Vern Gagne was not his father because he wasn't a good worker. I see that all the time. I know that you probably have dealt with that hundreds of times. I, I, this is a similarity in a lot of ways to Mike Graham. And, uh, it, you know, you'll, I'll hear it all the time. Mike Graham never sold a ticket. Mike Graham wouldn't have been in the business if it wasn't for his daddy, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. How do you address the great Ganya BS? Well, first of all, you have to realize that in any business, whether it be wrestling or banking or whatever it is, um, there's always that sort of sour grapes when the son or the daughter in the company of the owner seems to be getting, you know, going along and getting the push or, or you know, getting accolades. Um, the, the workers, the employees, they're always going to have that, you know, he's, he's only getting it because his daddy owns the company. But here's the way you got to look at it. And, and this comes both from Greg himself and it comes from Nick Bockwinkle, rest his soul. Um, I saw Greg and Nick wrestle, I got to say, a couple dozen times in singles matches. And I'm being honest, guys. I can honestly tell you that I never saw those two guys deliver a bad match. Greg more than carried his own. And here's where the, here's where the greatest compliment in the world comes from. Nick Bockwinkle himself said, whenever I wrestled Nick, or whenever I wrestled Greg, it was like having a night off. Now, if you guys are in the know, you realize that that's one of the highest praises a wrestler can give another wrestler. That means Greg was easy to work with, that he, was, he could put on a good match. And Greg, he told me, we talked about this in depth one time, it was shortly after... Um, Vern was going through all his Alzheimer's and everything. And Greg told me, he says, you know, I always took the heat because I was in the business because my dad owned the company and I didn't have the, the, the size per se 
that, you know, what a normal wrestler would have been perceived as having. And he says, but I got to tell you, Vern, he always called his dad Vern. And I think that was because of the business side of it. So he was always Vern. He says, Vern and Billy Robinson made sure that I was able to take care of myself in the ring. And he said, my dad told me that there are going to be guys that are going to try to to shoot on you, or they're going to try to deliver something to you because they're pissed off at me, you know, meaning Vern. And he said, so you got to, you got to be able to take care of yourself. And Greg said, I had guys that would say to me in the ring, here, give this to your old man or something like that. And Greg said, I always had to uh, be able to defend myself. And he said, I could, thanks to Vern and Billy Robinson. And of course, Nick, with his compliment, um, you know, the, the thing with Greg is, like I said, against Billy or against uh, Nick Bockwinkle, I never, honestly, so I always looked forward to their matches. The main event for the title, I always looked forward to it. And then, you know, when, you, when they put Greg with uh, Jim Brunzel, um, th- people don't realize, you know, back in the day, they're, they're uninformed if they say, well, they weren't popular or they weren't over. Because the high flyers were as over a baby face team as we've ever had in the seventies and the very early eighties in the AWA. And it was the, it was the two of them together. They gemmed together so well, Greg's drop kicks, high flying Brunzel, certainly with the drop kicks, the guy was a, um, a high jump champion in, uh, in school. And uh, they just, they, they gelled together so well. And when they had matches against Bachwinkle and Stevens, and of course, you know, Ray Stevens, I mean, oh my God, that guy could have a match with a lamp to- a lamppost and it would be great. But their matches and then those matches with Lanza and Duncombe, which was a continuation of the feud with the Heenan family, they were all absolutely phenomenal matches. And I'm not saying that because I wasn't a babyface fan. I mean, as a, as a young fan, if I was rooting, I was rooting for the heels all the time. So but I give them their due. They were great. So in George, as a follow-up to that, I had heard a story and I want to say, and I'm not positive. So I'll put that disclaimer that in Mick Karch's old Bockwinkle Brigade, which was the newsletter he put out for Nick Bockwinkle as the president of his fan club, he told a story in there, and I don't know if it was Bockwinkle uh, saying it or maybe Mick relating that he had heard this, but that there was an altercation at one point between Ken Patera and Greg Gagne. Greg, who probably weighed 175 pounds, Ken Patera, obviously a massive human being, and that Greg Gagne went toe-to-toe with him. Greg did not back down and wound up just going right at him. Have, had you ever heard that story? I had heard that story. The only thing I would say regarding the uh, the bulletins, the fan clubs, of course, in that time frame, a lot of it you have to remember was kept kayfabe in those days, and some of that stuff was, you know, told for storyline purposes. But Greg did uh, get in the face of Ken Patera, and Greg honestly, he wouldn't back down. You know, like I said, his his dad told him, you're going to have guys coming at you. They're going to be mad because they're not getting the push they think they need on a card or they deserve. and Or, you know, they, they're ticked off at a payday or whatever it might be. 
Uh, and you know, there were, it, it, it was the old story with, you know, I'm here and I'm supposed to be getting a push and they're giving the push to the old man's kid. So Greg never, never backed down. In fact, if anything, there were a lot of wrestlers that would tell you, uh, Red Bastine, Red Bastine told me, he said, honest to God, Greg is just a spitfire. He says, you don't want to piss him off because he can take care of himself. But he didn't have the perception to the fans because, you know, like you say, he looked like he was 175 pounds dripping wet. And he was probably around 190. That was probably legit. But he just didn't have uh, the biggest wrestling build. And then, of course, daddy's the owner, so I get a push. And that is so unfair. And it was unfair for Mike Graham, I'm going to guess, too. And and it would have been unfair for any other wrestler that was, uh, uh, you know, getting that type of treatment. Nick Bockwinkle, who I mentioned a moment ago, we know he was a second-generation wrestler. And Nick told me one time, he said, you know, when he first started in the business, he was always referred to as Warren's kid, you know, Warren Bockwinkle's kid. Right. And he said he had to uh, learn. And, you know, and Nick said, I learned from the best, not only my dad, Warren, but he says, I, I learned from Wilbur Snyder and I learned from Lou Fez that you got to be able to take care of yourself because they're going to want to take a shot at you. And the thing you guys need to know is that if you tried to make a list of all the wrestlers that Vern Gagne actually trained with the help of guys like Billy Robinson and Gene Anderson along the way, uh, Brad Rangans later on, but Vern trained these guys. And when you look at the list with, but the rarest exception, there isn't a guy on the list that didn't make money in the business, whether it be in the AWA or other parts of the country, when we had 25, 30 territories running rampant, you know, what a glory time that was. But these guys, they all made money, and Vern always made sure that when they came out of his camp, uh, they knew what they knew how to wrestle, and they knew how to add a character and make you know make uh, some persona that got. Look at Ric Flair, and there's that true story. I know we go off here a little bit, but that true story with Ric Flair. Rick quit Vern's camp. He said, "I'm not. I can't do it." And Vern actually did go over to his house. And he called him out on the front lawn and he said, you're coming back to the barn. I'm not letting you quit. He said, you're, you've got it. Come with me. And Vern did that. And we need to say nothing more about Ric Flair. I don't want to talk about the Flair that's out there today who's, I think, embarrassing himself. But the Ric Flair that was the nature boy, Vern Gagne and Billy Robinson created that. And Ric Flair was a wrestler first and a personality second. That's what Vern Gagne wanted in every wrestler that he put out there. The Anderson brothers, Von Raschke, the Blackjacks, uh, Ricky Steamboat, you know, the list, Larry Hennig. I mean, the Lars Anderson, the list is phenomenal. So you mentioned a, a name there and it, it kind of struck uh, a memory here. You know, we're talking about how, guys that would uh, maybe give Greg a little receipt because they were pissed off at Vern. And, you know, when you think about uh, promoters 
who have guys working for them. And, and of course, the job of a promoter is to make money first and foremost, uh, you know, and, yeah. and uh, the talent, they get uh, uh, what the promoter basically wanted to give them. Famously, though, one of the guys that made a lot of money with Vern, but who apparently had a very strong dislike for Vern was Larry Hennig. And it mm-hmm. kind of struck a chord with me and, and it made me think, you know, I, I hear stories about how uh, Roy Shire out in San Francisco made a lot of money. Guys went out there. They made really good money, but they hated working for him. And they would just that, that mother effer. And there were guys that would go to the AWA and they'd work for Vern and they'd make a lot of money. But then they'd be like that mother effer Vern. So can we think of another promoter that had more guys that kind of, even though they made money or may have been created by him, dislike to promote it more than Vern? Well, I think we got to be fair here. Uh, I would say that for every wrestler that you could name that allegedly had an issue with working for Vern or didn't like the money he was making or the push he was was or wasn't getting, um, I think for everyone you could name there, you could also name those that would say, hey, I enjoyed working for Vern. I was happy working for Vern. I got paid well from Vern. Uh, you know, if we if we judge Vern Gagne from 85, 1985, going backward, you're hard-pressed if you can find a wrestler that would say to you they didn't want to work for the AWA for various reasons. Number one, the lesser travel schedule, uh, lesser dates that they had to work, and also... Um, you know, in that territory, they, they, they were all given decent pushes. Now, I want to address the Larry Hennig thing. And again, Larry, both Larry and Vern have passed on. And Larry Hennig was, honestly, he was one of my best friends in wrestling. And I loved the guy. And Larry was as good as good could get. I mean, as a heel, as a baby face, few were better in their heyday than Larry Hennig was. He was big. He was convincible. He, uh, he had the, the gift of gab on the mic. He could deliver in the ring. And here was the deal. Vern trained along. Actually, Joe Pazendak helped. Vern and Joe Pazendak trained uh, Larry Hennig for the pro ranks. Now, Larry's deal I always say, you know what? Larry was his own worst enemy. And again, he was my friend and I love the guy. But Larry would bitch literally all the time about Vern Gagne. Well, I I challenge anyone, and I've got every single freaking program from the Twin Cities and a, a huge majority of them from other AWA cities. Vern Gagne never, ever buried Larry Hennig on any card or at any time frame during the years that Larry worked for him. Larry was in main events. He was making main event money. And here was the deal. Larry was jealous. That's the God's truth. He was jealous of Vern Gagne because Gagne owned the company. And they were both Robbinsdale High School. Robbinsdale is a suburb of Minneapolis. They were both Robbinsdale High School graduates and, and athletes, 10 years apart. Vern first, of course, then Larry 10 years later. 
But in Minnesota, if you just, you know, that's the headquarters for the AWA in the day, Vern was the man. He, he was the one that everybody recognized. He had charisma as a, as a businessman. When he was out, everybody knew who Vern Gagne was, even if they weren't a wrestling fan, because he was a football player with the Minnesota Gophers, the University of Minnesota, uh, great amateur wrestler for the, for the U of M. And he represented, you know, he was an alternate in the Olympics. So Larry didn't have that same background, even though he did play some football and he had some wrestling. Larry was bigger than Vern, so he didn't have the, I don't know what you'd call it, he, he didn't have the, the finesse that Vern had to move. Uh, you know, in Vern's heyday, I mean, there was nobody that was more a whirlwind in the ring. You know, not the later Vern Gagne, because he got old. But Larry was just simply jealous of Vern. Now, here's where the problem comes in. Larry could have honestly went to any territory in the country whatever territory it was, and with his ability, his size, his gift of gab, his character, he could have he could have been their star. But Larry didn't want to leave home. And and I don't I would never uh condemn the guy for that. He was a family guy. Larry did not want to haul his family around from territory to territory every six months or a year or two years, like most of the wrestlers did. You guys know this in those days. Unless you were in a territory that you owned or you, you had a home there. I mean, you were on the road. And Larry didn't want to do that. So he made the decision that I'm going to stay home. And he started a real estate business in 1957. Uh, got his license, started selling real estate. And he used that as a backup in the sense he was planning ahead. That if he ever got hurt in wrestling or wasn't able to continue, he had something to fall back on. But he wanted to stay home. So he used Vern as well as Vern used Larry because Vern could draw money with Larry. Larry could draw money and Vern kept him in the main events with not only as a singles wrestler, but with Harley Race for a number of years, then with Lars Anderson, then with Dusty Rhodes and Joe LaDuke. And of course, as a singles, uh, and then later on with his own son, Kurt. So Larry, uh, he was one of those guys that was just a disgruntled employee. And when you say, why do they do it if they don't like the boss? I know this is unrelated, but I worked in banking for 35 years, guys. And I had an employee who was there for 30 years. And she was the most unhappy person you could ever know on God's earth. She bitched about the company, about the bosses, about the management, about this, about that. And I asked her, I said, why have you continued to come here every day if you don't like it? I mean, I can't imagine more torture than anyone could do to themselves than to stay in a job and in this case, stay with a company. If you didn't like it, why would you do that to yourself? So that was Larry's problem. And Vern, Nick Bockwinkle, oh my gosh, he, he could not say enough good things about working for Vern Gagne. And he was loyal to Vern to the very end. He took the approach. I like it here. Vern's the boss. Whatever the boss wants me to do, I go in and do it. And that's what Nick did. 
for his last 17 years of his career. Before that, he was a gypsy traveling from territory to territory like the rest of them. So Vern was, uh, he was a strict guy. He was, in a way, he was a my way or the highway type guy. But when you consider in the 60s and the 70s and in the very early 80s, there wasn't a wrestler of any note out there that wouldn't have given their eye teeth to come and work for the AWA. And when you look at the talent roster over the years that did come here, this is why, because they enjoyed the, uh, the territory and working for Vern, a lot of them, if they got along with him, you just, you went along with it. I hope that answers your question. No, absolutely. I yeah, I think it answers and with like a little extra helping there, Jeff, would you agree? <laughs> yeah. So George, I have a question. This would be about the AWA champions of the nineteen eighties. So obviously Vern Gagne, Nick Bockwinkle, uh in you know, and I believe Vern at one point maybe was it eighty or eighty one that Vern had, had the title and uh in and Nick Bockwinkle got it, but you did have a quite an eclectic group that was holding the AWA title in the 80s. You had two guys from Japan, Jumbo Sharuda and Masa Saito, Rick Martel, Otto Vaughn, Stan Hansen, and there may be a couple others, Larry Zabisco, obviously, that I was forgetting. Uh, out of that group, and and I will tell you, I'm a big fan of both Saito and Sharuda, but out of that group, who do you feel was a true great representative for the AWA and professional wrestling versus maybe who do you feel maybe shouldn't have had the title? Well, I think first of all, what you have to do when you talk about after 1982 or so, you know, Vern retired in 1981, May of 81. And, and let me just touch on that very briefly. Vern took the title back from Nick Bockwinkel after Nick had it for almost five years. Vern took it back one last time, and he was approaching 55 years old or whatever he was at the time. He put the title on himself for one year with the idea that he was going to retire as champion. Now, Vern, was he had an ego, and he was going to put himself over. A lot of people don't realize. This was a storybook, uh, a story that you could ever come up with. You had the aging champion who was trying to retain his championship and retain it and go out and retire as champion. That's a storybook. And Vern did it with all of the accolades that he wanted. And when he did this, there were 20,000 people in the 20,000-seat Civic Center in St. Paul that were there. It was Vern Gagne Day by the governor proclamation. Uh, you know, it, Vern was huge. And he, he did this as a storybook. So then those people that say, well, Vern put the title on himself and he had to put himself over. Well, you don't understand. I'm, I'm just going to say you don't understand how pro wrestling worked, if, if that's all you can come up with. Because Vern was still credible. And that last match against Nick for the title when Vern was going out as champion, yeah, Vern was, again, showing his age. But between Nick working with him and, and the two of them and their chemistry that they'd had for the dozens of times they'd wrestled through the years, they put on an, a great match, and it had a classic ending to it. Vern put Nick to sleep and retained the title. Now, to answer your question, so Vern Gagne is retired. 
Well, Nick got the title back and had it for a while. But Nick is already at this point starting to think of his own retirement. And Vern went with uh, Jumbo Sharuda, who was, Vern was working with Giant Baba. I mean, Baba and Vern were friends through the years and guys. And he, he did a favor, so to speak, for, for Baba with Sharuda getting the title and winning it from Nick. And then Martel, of course, Ricky Martel comes in, takes it from Sharuda. I think Martel, at the time, because he was known to the AWA, whereas Sharuda was more of a, he had been in once or twice, he wasn't known to the AWA fans per se, and so he was that outsider. What was good about that is it showed that if you're perceiving wrestling as being real, which they always did in those days, it showed that on any given night, any challenger out there could beat the champion. So with Saruta coming sort of out of the nowhere, that made sense. And then have Martel win it from him. Martel was a regular here at the time. Um, you know, was he the best choice for champion? Yeah, with what Vern had at the time for talent, Martel was the best because we'd already gotten, we were getting close to this Hogan crap going on with McMahon starting his expansion. And we'll say it right now, Vern was never, if he lived to be 100, was never going to put the title on Hogan because Hogan was nothing but a showman. And Vern realized that he could draw with Hogan, but he drew well because Nick Bockwinkle with Bobby Heenan was the champion. And Hogan made the best challenger. And sometimes people don't realize that, that in the instance of Nick Bockwinkle, Hogan was the better challenger. And, you know, he got screwed out of the title. Heenan interfered, got disqualified, counted out of the ring. Any number of shenanigans they came up with. So it made sense that that Hogan, and because Hogan wasn't a wrestler, and Hogan was having his Japan travels, and, and Vern couldn't get him all the time, and then he went to McMahon, and the rest is history. So with Martell, I think that was a good champion. Here's what happened, though, and this is, well, Let's back with Otto Bonds for a minute. That was strictly a financial money deal that Vern did as a favor. Otto Bonds was coming here. Vern had been over in uh, Austria, along with Raschke and a couple of other guys. Larry Hennig was there. They, um, they wrestled in Austria for Otto Bonds, who was the promoter over there. And Otto wanted to come here and be able to say that he was world champion and come back to his country, you know, as having won the world title. So he paid Vern $50,000. True story. And Vern took it. Otto beat Nick. Came right out of nowhere. I mean, Otto was like, he wins the match. I was there. What? You look at it and you go, what happened? Because he was the last guy you would have ever expected. But he had it for three months. or not, not even three months. Two months. Won it in August, lost it in October of uh, 82, 81. So anyway, Otto is champion, and he goes back to Austria, and he's now been the world champion. So that was just a, it was just a financial deal. But it also showed again that some unknown challenger on any given night could take the champion down. And that's what made being the champion real. You had to believe that he could be beat. And you had to believe that on certain times, I don't know where this came from. 
with Stan Hansen, that was a deal where now we're into the promotional war with McMahon taking the talent and the AWA struggling to keep talent and bring in talent. Jack Lanza and Nick Bockwinkle both told Vern Gagne, and Greg told me this story. He said, you know, they sat down with Vern and they said, please don't do this. They didn't want him to put the title on Hanson because Hanson was, as Brody was, just a free agent. He wasn't going to be loyal to any promoter. He wasn't going to let any promoter trap him into any type of a I own you type situation. So Stan Hansen was one of those, but he was a draw. And at the time, Vern needed a, a really uh, an international draw. And that's where Stan fit the bill. So Vern went against Lanza and Nick and put it on Hansen. Well, what happens there is Hansen or Vern had worked out a deal with Baba in Japan that when Stan goes over there, because Stan was loyal to Giant Baba, and when Stan goes over there, he can defend the AWA title. Of course, he's not going to lose it over there because it's Vern's title, but Stan can go over there and defend it. Well, what eventually happened was Vern is trying to run dates, and Stan has gone to Japan more and more, and he says, well, I'm not going to be here for eight weeks, and so on and so forth. So eventually, Vern says, I'm taking the title back from him. And you know the famous story where Vern went into him and said, I want you to drop the title. Stan said, not going to happen because I'm going over to, to Japan, and they're already advertising me as champion. Vern says, well, you're done. You're not going to be champion. And Stan left with the belt. We all love that famous story that's been around for years. And he took the belt, went to Japan. What a lot of fans don't realize is, during that short tour of, of, of Japan, Stan did wrestle over there as AWA champion. He was introduced as champion, but at the time he wasn't because Vern had already given it to Nick by default here in you know his company. So here's the bottom line on this. My theory is, and it's just my theory, my opinion, take it for what it's worth. When Vern, when, when Stan Hansen worked for Vern Gagne, Vern Gagne was his boss. And therefore, when Vern tells him to drop the title, he does it. When Stan was working for Baba, Baba was his boss. And he did what Baba said. What fans mess up on is that they think that Vern was unfair for taking the title off of him. And I just say Vern was the boss. It was his title. And then Nick Bockwinkle, let's throw him back in. He said, you know, I always told Vern, what do you want me to do? You're going to drop the belt? Okay, fine, no problem. Nick says it was his company. And that's where some of these guys got lost in their thinking. Their own egos, their own, uh, uh, they, they just ran away with themselves. And that's what happened with Stan Hansen. So, yeah, we had a mess with that. Uh, so, as we let me, no, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go uh, ahead. I, I need it. No, no, I was just going to say, so since uh, Bockwinkle and Lanza told Vern that Hanson would not be a good choice, did they offer an alternative to Vern? Like, hey, how not about that, this guy? No, I, not that I recall, guys. I mean, I have never heard that there was a, well, how about plan B? They just pretty much said, you you might not want to go. 
And, you know, the sad thing was, is that Vern had already went through this with Bruiser Brody or King Kong Brody that he was called here. Um, he had already went through this Brody, you know, you couldn't tell him what to do. And I loved Brody. I mean, what a talent, what a, what a, what a draw great, but you couldn't tell him he, he was coming into any territory and he was going to do what Brody wanted to do. If he didn't like what you wanted him to do, he wouldn't do it. He literally in a match with Jerry Blackwell here in the AWA in St. Paul. Brody walked out, left the damn auditorium right during the match. He walked out. He, he wasn't going to do the finish that Vern wanted. And so I don't know how you, you know, if you own a company, and I, again, I don't care if it's wrestling. I don't care if it's a bank. I don't care if it's a, a lumber company. You can't have your employees telling you what they will or won't do. And unless it's illegal and you work for someone, you do what they ask you to do. Does that make sense? That's the way it is here on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, right, Bear? <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? So, well, uh, it, it, no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry, George. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I just use that rationale that no employee can ever, I mean, you can go to the boss and say, hey, I'd like, I got a better idea, or I'd rather do this, or how about we do this? But you can't go in and say, I'm not going to do this. How, how can you work for a company if you're not going to do what the, the company asks you to do? No, I, I understand. In that, my that, world, that's just common sense. Yeah, no, that's a valid point. So anyway, uh, taking the long circuitous route, though that was extremely informative and interesting, getting back to the tag match here. Uh, so uh, I had asked you about how long Lanza and Duncan held the titles. Uh, so the high flyers, was there a uh, the proverbial chase leading up to the title change? You know, for like you know two or three months they were kind of chased them, and here they finally won. Was this kind of out of the blue? How did that? How, how did the title change uh, get set up? It wasn't out of the blue. What was really going on was the High Flyers had gotten together in 1974 when they started to take off, and they had started as a team against the Bobby Heenan family at the time, which consisted of uh, Bachwinkle and Stevens. So that was kind of an ongoing thing that the high flyers against, you know, Heenan along with Heenan would team with one of the two of them. And then for a while they had uh, uh, Boris Brezhnikov, who was Nikolai Balkov in the WWF. He was here managed by uh, Heenan and he worked. But when we get to 19, 75 when Nick took the title from Byrne Ray Stevens was being phased out he was leaving in fact I think he showed up in Florida if my memory serves me correctly what year uh, was for that? a while uh, in 75 late 75 or at least 76 I think he might have he been did. down in Florida he did he showed up in geez I guess it would have <laughs> been either winter or spring of 76 as a yeah. heel with a young Jimmy Garvin going by the yeah. name of Bo James as his manager. That's correct. There you go. Well, anyway, so Stevens was kind of being phased out. Nick was now the uh, heavyweight champion. So Lanza, he was coming back, and Vern needed somebody to put with him. We get Duncan in there. And Bobby Heenan is their manager because Lanza had been in the Heenan family from the early 70s. You know, he'd been kind of a constant. He'd leave, but he'd come back, and Heenan would always manage it. So now we got the Flyers chasing 
Lanza and Duncombe, who Lanza and Duncombe took the tag team, or actually when uh, Nick and Ray were starting to get phased down and Nick was going to be transferred into a singles guy in uh, August of 75, that's when the Crusher and the Bruiser took the title from Nick and Ray. It was a short-term thing. Vern asked Crusher and Bruiser to do it. And then the idea that well, he was going to build for Lanza and Duncombe to uh, come in. So Crusher and Bruiser held the title for about a year, actually about 11 months. We never got title defenses. I mean, Bruiser was running his own group. Crusher would have other partners, but, you know, we never had title matches. So then Lanza and Duncombe got it. And the High Flyers at the time, they were, you know, like one of our premier babyface teams. And it just made sense for him to continue on. And that's how it all came about. Then eventually, uh, Vern was going to put the title on the Flyers. Vern's logic was, and every promoter had their idiosyncrasies. Vern's logic was that if he had a, a babyface champion, he had to have heel tag team champion. And Vern's logic was is that if he had a, a heel champion, then he had to have babyface tag team. And that's where Greg and Jim fell into the, to the mix. And they were extremely over. And again, for the next year or so, then we've got match after match of some combination of the Heenan family. Brunzel got title shots with Nick. Uh, Greg got title shots. Six-man tags. You know, you name it. It, it just it all went with the storyline so well. Going with that storyline and, and looking at the focus of tag team wrestling, the AWA, in my opinion, was even though you had a really solid world, and I've talked throughout the 70s or at least the second half of the 70s into the early 80s, Nick Bockwinkle, but the tag team action that took place in the AWA, I think, was really comparable to any other territory, and you had some great tag teams. Who, in your opinion, do you feel should have gotten a bigger push, possibly as a tag team? Or who would you like to have seen come in to the territory to work with the champions? You know, I'm a big tag team fan. Ever since I was a a young, young kid, I I love tag team matches versus singles matches because of all of the various stories that you can tell within a match. And, of course, I'm old enough to remember the two out of three fall tag team matches where – there could be so many little things that happened in that story uh, while they were, you know, wrestling each other. But as far as tag teams, if you look at the mid seventies, yeah, we had Nick Bockwinkle as a singles champion, but when we didn't have Nick on the card, he was defending in another city. We'd have a tag team main event. And that's where Lance and Duncombe came in as champions, because then you could have a tag, you could have a title match uh, in another city as well. But the tag teams that we had here, we were we were filled with tag teams, Mad Dog Vashon and Baron Von Raschke. What a tag team! And they were a, they were an established team since the late '60s in Canada. We had the Valiant Brothers come in, Jimmy and Johnny. We had. George, I'm going to interrupt you for one second right there as well. So, And the reason is we saw the Valiant Brothers come into the state of Florida the first time, if I'm correct. uh, It was at the Super Bowl of Wrestling 1978. Then we saw the Valiant Brothers come in and do one-offs. They may come in for a week, uh, maybe just do a couple of shots. 
Then we saw Johnny come in as a single. I believe that was 1980. Johnny was in line for a big push. And the giveaway with that was that they put him on the front cover of the program where he was proclaiming he was going to win the Florida title. Generally speaking, if that happened, this guy was getting a push and was going to win the Florida title because that was kind of the pattern we saw. Within two weeks, Johnny was working prelims. Within a month, Johnny was out of the state. My own opinion, I never thought the Valiant brothers were good wrestlers. They were, uh, there was charisma there for sure. They certainly knew how to engage a crowd, but when they got in the ring, their matches, at least the ones I saw, were less than good. They were below mediocre <laughs> to almost poor. And I think both Jimmy and Johnny were both responsible for that. Am I off base in your opinion or, or what do you think? And do you think that they could have fit into the AWA seamlessly? No, let me say, first of all, I do agree with you. I I was not enamored with the Valiant Brothers. Their gimmick was good, but as wrestlers, they did not fit the mix where I think a lot of the guys that worked with them probably had to do a little bit more to make the Valiants, Valiants look better than what they were. To say that they weren't good, though, that wouldn't be fair because they were. Here's what happened in the AWA. The Valiants had been in Bruiser's WWA group, and they were champs there for a while. And we all we also remember that if, you know in the mid seventies, any after magazine that you pulled up from the newsstands uh, for about two year period, the Valiant brothers seemed to be all over them because they were they were in New York or WWF at the time, and they were really getting the push, and they were champions. What happened when they and came willing to bleeders that also helped sell the magazines. Yeah, but you also have to remember when you speak of the bleeder, Vern was very careful about that. He didn't like to have uh, bleeders in every match or every card. Vern wanted there to be a reason for it. So when he did do it with the Crusher or Bobby Heenan along the way, and it would happen, you know, periodically, but it wasn't often. Um, it, it had to mean something. Vern was not a territory where every card, the main event, you know, like you, every, the, the match is a, a slaughterhouse. Uh, he just didn't like that. And we didn't need it. Fans came to see more wrestling as Vern presented it. But with the Valiant Brothers, when they came into the AWA, Vern was never going to put the title on them for one very specific reason. And, and a lot of people are going to find this weird. Number one, they were already champions on the East Coast in the WWF, and they had held the title in Bruiser's group. And Vern wasn't going to put the title on them because he wanted his territory, his, his champions, to be perceived as being better than those champions. Does that make any sense? But that's what it was. To and the other does. thing yeah. was, Bobby Heenan, behind the scenes, he did not like the Valiant. And he managed them for a long time in Bruiser's group. But Bobby, he, he basically said to Vern, we don't want, we don't want them as champions. We, we, you know, whatever their beef was, Bobby was behind the scenes saying, we're not going to do it. And I'll be honest with you guys. I did not see the fans, at least the majority of the matches that I saw them in in the Twin Cities, the Valiants 
they were over, but they weren't, they weren't the guys that were drawing the money on the card, if that makes sense. And when the, when the high flyers are against them or Larry Hennig and Joel Duke, who were a team at the time, a babyface team, the, the fans were solidly behind uh, Hennig and Leduc. The Valiants just didn't have it. And again, Vern was drawing well with Lanza and Duncan with Heenan. He wasn't going to take the title off of them at that time. So the Valiants were okay. The High Flyers were okay. We had, in my opinion, guys, one of the greatest tag teams in the doggone business. And I thought they should have been champions. I thought they could have been champions, but they never got it. And that was Larry Hainimi and Buddy Wolf. Wow. You had to watch. You had to watch those two guys together to realize how really good they were. And they could have drawn, even if they wanted to put Heenan with them. That would have been a good mix too. But they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So all the teams that I mentioned to you. Uh, Rashke, Vashon, the Valiants, Hennig, LeDuc, uh, Hainimi, Wolf. We were a tag team heaven. And then you got the champions. Well, you could throw Crusher and Bruiser in because they were in and out here and there. And then makeshift teams as well. Lance and Duncan was the best choice at the time, and Vern drew money with them. Back up to 1969 to 71, when the Vashon brothers were tag team champions in the AWA. I don't think you could find a fan out there that wouldn't tell you that uh, Billy Red Lions and Red Bastine would have been good tag team champions. But Vern was drawing so well with the Vashans, he wouldn't take the title off of them until they went to him and said, we want to have it taken off because they were going to go to Montreal and start the Grand Prix promotion in 70, uh, in middle of 71. So it wasn't until dog and butcher asked them to take it off that they did it. But, you know, tag teams, uh, just like singles wrestlers, sometimes guys just make better challengers than they do champions. And sometimes a guy just doesn't need a title to draw, you know, throw the crusher in there or whoever you want. Crusher didn't want to be strapped with the tag team title. And he didn't want to be strapped with the singles title because he just wanted to be a carefree guy and do what he wanted when he wanted to. And some guys, and he certainly didn't need a title to draw. So George, getting back to the match, uh, I wanted to uh, just ask you, first of all, this, this is like a, a really good match as I was watching it. And, yeah. you know, I, I'll kind of push back on some, I know uh, Barry said he was a big Bobby Duncan fan. I thought of the four guys in the ring that Duncan was probably the least impressive, which isn't to, you know, completely crap on him and say he wasn't any good. He just out of the four guys was the least impressive. The guy, because I'd seen the high flyers before, uh, know both guys uh, and their abilities. But the guy that really kind of impressed me in this match was Lanza, who was taking great bumps, was doing some really good work, and I thought really was kind of the star of this match. What do you think about that? I would agree with that. And I would say that the Jack Lanza that you saw in that match was very typical of Jack, you know, through the seventies, he started to age as again, we all do, but 
again, he was a Vern, he was a Vern Gagne trainee back in the early sixties when Vern brought him in, trained him and he had a loyalty to Vern throughout the years. So he was more of the bump taker of the Duncombe duo. But, um, I, I agree with you. I think Lance of, you know, whatever shortcomings Bobby Duncombe could show in the ring with the three guys he was in against, a lot of it can be masked. And Bobby just drew well in his own way, just the way he was. One of the things in 1979 that I thought was interesting was Vern brought Stan Hansen in all but briefly. And the intent was that Lanza had left the territory at that time for a while. And Vern had actually thought about putting the title on Hansen and Duncan. Now that was a decent team. If you looked at their styles, they kind of meshed in their own way, although Hansen's a little more of the aggressor of the two. But that was short-lived because Vern and Hansen got into a squirmus over uh, some money issue, and Stan didn't like it, and he was gone. So, which also, if you want to go forward to 1986, when Vern put the title on him, the singles title, uh, Vern should have learned his lesson from six, seven years before. So one of the things that the announcer uh, says, uh, was it Roger Kent, by the way? Roger Kent, probably, yeah. Okay, so he makes a comment uh, as to the fact that Bobby Heenan is not at ringside with Lonza and Duncan. And so uh, I guess my question is, was this just part of the angle to set up the return matches that Bobby hadn't been present or what? Well, there's the magic of it. They make pre- they make mention of the fact that Heenan wasn't there. And, of course, then Lanza and Duncan lose the title to the high flyers. Well, then there's your excuse or you're out right there. Bobby wasn't there to work the strategy with him. Bobby wasn't there because, you know, whatever the storyline was, he was barred or he didn't make it or, you know, whatever the story is. But it does lead to the rematches, which they had several after that. And that was the draw. And Lanz and Duncombe became good challengers. Yeah. And, you know, I will say that at the end of this match, the way you see the crowd just rush the ring. Uh, you know, completely popping for, for Greg and Jim was, was really pretty impressive. Well, it was impressive. And, you know, again, you had to be in that era and see the matches, you know, that I did with the high flyers. They had a huge, uh, fan base. I mean, literally they were popular today. As we look at social media and all the, uh, wrestling pages, et cetera, you know, you always got the detractors. Again, we go back to where we started this thing about Greg getting the push only because of daddy. And it's just unfair. I mean, Greg was, as far as I'm concerned, I, I go along with what Nick said. Wrestling Greg was like having a night off. And you can't give a wrestler a better compliment. Greg, Nick told me, in fact, I did an interview with Nick one time for one of the podcasts that I was doing back in the day. And Nick actually brought it out. He said, you know, if I could have wrestled Greg every night of the week, I'd have been happy. You know, you that know, says a lot. That says a lot. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know, Barry, one thing I really hate when we talk to George is I, I feel like I never learn anything because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. 
So, well, you so, know, I, I do kind of go around the block and before I come back. Yeah, well, we've there. never been known to do that, George. Not at That's all. for sure. So uh, I have one last question before we uh, wrap up. And it, uh, I'm going to go back to uh, your discussion on Larry Hennig uh, and the fact that you were, uh, you know, you knew Larry very well and were friends with him and stuff like that. And you talked about how Larry was a guy that kind of wanted to stay close to the old home base, if you will, for as much as he may have bitched and complained about Vern. So there was, of course, a point in time when Larry went to Madison Square Garden and had the matches with, with Pedro Morales, who was the WWF champion at the time. Uh, did Larry ever, uh, tell you any thoughts about, you know, his, uh, time spent in, uh, in, uh, as they say, New York and, uh, whether he liked it, uh, whether he, uh, did well there, he felt, uh, any comments, uh, from Larry to you about that? Well, what you have to do when you look at that, uh, short time. Sometimes I refer to it as a coffee break. If you look at the actual time frame that Larry was out east, I mean, it was only a few months and he was given a big push as being a big star. That was when he grew his beard, which he had never had as pretty boy Larry Hennig. He grew his beard. He was more of a bully wrestler. He had put on some weight and bulked up a little bit from his pretty boy days. And he had that run with Pedro, you know, the old formula where they build up a challenger, just like they did with Bruno, they build up a challenger, have a series of matches. And then before you know it, the challengers, you know, he's down in the preliminaries are gone from the territory. That was kind of a, a formula that worked for that territory at the time. But Larry was only there a short time. And again, it was a short time because he wanted to be home. Larry would, you know, when I say he was a, a homebody, uh, he lived in, in St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is a, a suburb of the Twin Cities here. And he would travel around to the cities, but he could always come home at night. And that's what he wanted or be home in the next day. And when he did go to another territory, usually it was just for a short time. Uh, Barry, I'm sure, would remember that he popped up. You know, Larry showed up in Florida a few times for short visits. Uh, he was there in 74 for a while. I think he even teamed with guys like Bob Roop. I think he had a battle with, uh, uh, he did. We, so we saw Larry. It, I, if I'm correct, we saw him three times. We saw him 70 or 71. Yeah. And, he was there, and then yeah. he came back and it was 75. Coincidentally or not, the booker at the time, Harley Race. So, yeah. uh, yeah, so I consider us lucky, but he was a big part of 1975, teaming with Roop, teaming with Race, uh, working with guys like, you know, Dusty Rhodes, obviously, Cyclone Negro, and a host of others. And then we saw Larry, which would have been for the last time. I want to say he was here for two weeks, maybe three weeks, and that was 1978. His last match in the state of Florida against Ivan Putsky. <laughs> Pardon me. Now, Putsky's a guy that you also saw in the AWA, correct? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. He was he was here when Larry transformed into the babyface uh, Larry the Axe, and he and uh, Putsky were even a team for a little bit off and on. L- let me share this with you, because you mentioned Harley Race as the booker at the time Larry was in Florida. And we should also note that a lot of times when the AWI guys would show up in Florida, you know, like Nick and Ray or Hennig and stuff like that. A lot of times they were really coming down just to catch some Florida sun and, and, uh, you know, it'd be the middle of the winter up here in Minnesota and they just come down to, you know, get some sun and 
and and Eddie Graham and promoters would give them a chance to wrestle. But I a little working you, vacation, if you will, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know when you talk about a working vacation, when Nick and Ray were tag team champions up here, they ended up taking off for a while. They went down to Florida in '72. Uh, I do all this stuff at the top of my head, so sometimes I even have to stop for a second to make sure I'm right. But in 72, and they came down, Nick and Ray, they were doing a working vacation, and they didn't come in as AWA champions, but they worked some team matches, and they actually won, I believe it was the Florida tag team title from, uh, oh, I want to say like Tim Woods and, uh, uh, boy. They, yeah, held, not, they held the, they held big the bad Florida John. title. Big Bad John, I believe. That doesn't sound right. Because they I were thought, they were Florida tag team champs. And really, when you're talking in professional wrestling about a completely team that is uh, 180 apart from their styles, Tim Woods and Big Bad John would be it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. But anyway, that was a working vacation. They held the Florida tag team title. They lost it to the whoever they lost it to without me looking it up. And they came back home and there was no mention of it. But I want to talk to you when you mentioned Harley Race as the booker and, and Larry came in for a while to Florida. Uh, Larry Hennig and Harley Race, if you were a fan in the 60s, from 64 to 68, into 69, which I was fortunate to be, it is arguably the two greatest tag teams in the business for that period of time were Hennig and Race in the AWA and Stevens and Patterson out in San Francisco. I mean, people will tell you these two teams, they just drew money and they rocked. Now, Larry and Harley, and Larry told me this, and when he did, I swear to you guys, he had a tear in his eye. Larry told me, in fact, it was only a couple weeks, yeah, just a couple weeks before he passed away. He told me, he said, in their entire time together to the very day he was sitting there telling me this story, he said he and Harley never had a crossword. They got along. They traveled around the AWA together. And he said, the only reason our team ever broke up, he said, Harley wanted to do more traveling. And he had, he had an adventurous soul about him. And he left the team and he said, if I'd have went with him, I don't know where I'd be today. You know, I just don't know. But I, I didn't want to leave home. And so Harley Race went on. You know, he became NWA champion a zillion times. And But Larry Hennig and Harley Race were probably as good a team as you could ever come up with. And you don't know how hated they were. And, and they were still young. So Larry and Harley had a special place to each other. And, and Larry, I swear to you, he had a little tear on his cheek when he, because Harley was going through some health issues here back in uh, 2017. And Larry wasn't doing that well either, to be honest. And he said, you know, I just, I, I've always loved the guy. And, and we talk, he says, I try to talk to him once a month. And they're just buddies. So it, they, they had a marriage that they just couldn't, continue together because Larry wasn't going to move out of the territory. Interesting story. Very much. So Barry, uh, I think uh, our man, sweet Lou uh, coming up with the answer to the tag team partner for Tim Woods was 
Hiro Matsuda and, and Lou. Go. Yeah, and Lou putting the caveat, but of course it's Wikipedia, but he is correct. It was Hiro Matsuda. However, six months later in January, it was Tim Woods and Big Bad John holding the title as well. Though, Jeff, you'd have to agree, Tim Woods and Hiro Matsuda seems to make a little more sense. Yeah, that, that seems to be a yeah. little more uh, in the style. So, hey, listen, George. Man, we've gone over an hour, and it seems like it went by in about 10 minutes. So yep. <laughs> uh, I want to tell you how much we appreciate you coming on, giving a little bit of, uh, as we call it, the College of Wrestling knowledge, uh, not only to Barry and myself, uh, but to our listeners, and uh, giving them a little uh, historical context, not only for our match of the week, but for so much uh, of the rest of uh, the AWA. And we really do appreciate your time, my man. Well, you know, I enjoy talking about it as if you couldn't figure that out. And I always appreciate doing it with you guys. Um, it's fun. You let me tell the stories and I, th- I hope people learn from it. Let me know the link or whatever it is so I can give this a listen when uh, it's done. I appreciate I, it. I will have our man, Sweet Lou, hook you up with definitely the, uh, the link to this episode so you can uh, check it out. George Shire, thank you so much for joining us here, and we will post a link to the match, which took place on the 7th of July, 1977, title change in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Barry, about ready to wrap it up. I think, uh, let's see, I, I got to get my calendar right here because I apparently, Kevin, according to Kevin Orcutt, screwed up, uh, did something wrong last week. So, oh, you got that new- message also, huh? Yeah. Are you in the yeah. new year? Are we in the new year at the time? <laughs> if we are, happy new year to everybody. If we're not, ah, fuck it, wait till next week. But yep. uh, on that note, uh, great discussion with George Shire. Always good talking to him, getting some uh, little wrestling knowledge in the history of the AWA, some Vern Gagne stories, Larry Hennig stories, Nick Bockwinkel stories. Good Lord, George just coming through with the stories today, Barry. That's George. That, this is the reason George is arguably one of the best guests that any podcast could have. He's got passion. He's got knowledge. And uh, he's never shy to speak his mind. So, yeah. yeah. And loves talking about the AEW, apparently. I don't, yeah, that, little, that would have been a lot of fun, joke, though. Yeah. Private joke. So, uh, anyway, on that note, I will remind you as we uh, turn the corner head for home that uh, I almost said AEW is a production. No, not AEW. Breaking <laughs> Gay Fame. With Bob and Barry, it's a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. On behalf of our producer, Lou Kippelman, and my boy, Gunny. Buddy, I sure missed you at the holiday season. But your son, as I call him, Snap, is helping me get through it. And our co-host, Barry Rose, I will say, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.